0: No Direction's Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage is brought to you by Roll for Combat's new Fall of Plagestone Pathfinder 2E actual play podcast. Featuring Stephen Glicker, Jason McDonald, Rob Tremarco, and No Direction's own Lauren Sig and Vanessa Hoskins. Find it and other Pathfinder and Starfinder podcasts, interviews, and reviews at rollforcombat.com.
1: No Direction presents our Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Pazzo. We'd like to thank our seminar team, Lauren Sieg, James Ballad, Vanessa Hoskins, and me, Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Perrin. We'd also like to thank Peyton Smith from Paizo for helping getting this produced. This content and more great seminar coverage, as well as Pathfinder and Starfinder content, is available at nodirectionpodcast.com.
2: Alright, hello folks! Welcome to Secrets of Galarian. Um, basically, this is a Q&A session for you to bring all of your in-depth lore questions, or even simple lore questions, that's your call, to us and then we will answer them to the best of our ability. Um, and if While come- probably
3: also making snide commentary.
2: We love that, we do a lot of that. Um, So uh, with that, let me just get some introductions out of the way or start them off. Uh, My name is John Compton, Um, I've been working as the Organized Play Lead Developer uh, for Paizo, so Pathfinder Society, Starfinder Society, that sort of fun stuff.
3: My name is Liz Liddell, I am the Senior Editor at Paizo and I uh, had the privilege of being a developer on the second edition Core Rulebook.
4: I'm Adam Daigle, I'm the Managing Developer of Pathfinder and I also got to, along with Liz, Develop the core rulebook and bestiary and a bunch of other things.
2: And then they passed that stuff to me and said, make an organized play program. <laughs> yeah. I got to shake my fist at them. Um, <laughs> all right. So, yeah, this is really driven by the audience, whether it is our live audience or if we can get any questions from uh, Twitch as well, that's always lovely. So raise those hands and we'll see about oh, Colin.
3: If I can, uh, just real quick, um, questions uh, are brief contain a question and end with a question mark.
2: And one other important thing is, questions that we can answer are going to involve anything except the death of Aridin. Uh, We don't cover that. I know, I know, we ruin everything.
1: Enter, and I also, there's a note of him in the Verizia book. Who is he?
4: That is a secret for James Jacobs to reveal in his own sweet time. Uh, James has a lot of little, like, subplots and threads throughout the entire life cycle of Galarian, um, because... Quite frankly, a lot of glaring came from his old, you know, campaign for his home group before he joined Paizo or any of that. Um, and I don't even know what his plans are for the Ashen Man.
2: Probably involves him giggling a lot but every time we ask him.
4: Just like how um, like the in Rise of the Rune Lords there was the um, murderer Jervis Stute um, from Chopper's Isle and that was tied into this other figure called the Red Bishop at some point, which is just another example of one of James's like little personal threads. And sometimes he'll dump like the smallest little seed of a thing and then not grow that into fruition for years and years to come.
2: But I think it's worth noting that uh, that's something that we not only do as developers and, and professionals at Paizo, but even to an extent when we are writing on things or even some of our freelancers will sort of incorporate things and comment on them and say, I intend this as an adventure hook. And there are a lot of unanswered things or or loose threads in our setting, in part because we want to be able to make sure that you can pick it up and run with it however you like. So you may have your own plan for the Ashen Man. Five years later, maybe we publish something about the Ashen Man, you can say, not at all what my vision was, Uh, but, you know.
4: Not at my table, But It all works out. More questions.
5: If you have any questions, please just come up to the microphone.
3: Is that a wireless microphone? Are we able to take it to people if need be? Yeah. Excellent.
6: Hey, guys. So I really like Cosmital and Arcadia and all the stuff we learned about recently. So I just want to ask, is there anything cool about Arcadia you can tell us that we don't know about yet?
4: Um, one of my visions, I've been the, like one of the larger proponents of doing Arcadia stuff. And um, uh, and I've recently passed that torch on to Luis Loza because we both share the same interest for it. Um, one of the things that I always wanted to do with Arcadia Um, because a lot of people will automatically jump to, like, real-world analogs, and that's something I'm not a super fan of. I think sometimes it's—it can sometimes be a little lazy, and it can also lead to pitfalls and traps that you don't anticipate. So one of the things I was thinking about with Arcadia, like, it wasn't ever colonized. It wasn't ever invaded by a foreign power. So it— became a very isolationist type nation or continent, where they were able to, instead of focusing on defending from outwards or even trying to go outwards, you focused in on the people and on yourselves. And so I always imagined it being slightly higher technology, um, way different magic, um, a lot of sense of community within certain groups of people because you need to rely upon each other, but also, um, it has completely wild lands full of
2: monsters because you need threats.
5: We have a question from Twitchtrot from Oil and Green. Uh, what were the Eruksii doing while they were off screen in the first edition?
2: Uh, so the Eruksii in a way were never entirely off screen. We have a couple different things that, we have a couple different populations, yeah. I'm going
3: to yeah. interrupt once, um, if you have not read the entire um, second edition best year yet, Eruksii is the name um, that the lizard folk of first edition used to refer to themselves.
2: Yes, indeed. Because why are they lizard folk and the rest of us get to be humans? Um, so, we've we've had lizard folk in the setting for quite a while. And we've had them in a variety of different places. Um, the majority of them have been in uh, Garund. And we've definitely had a lot of presence uh, through a couple of our uh, Pathfinder Tales novels uh, in particular. Drilled down on those. Uh, through the Gate in the Sea and uh, Pool of Radiant Stars. Um, but we've also referenced in the inner world guide that there are some things that happen in southern gerund or really the bottom two-thirds of gerund that are not mapped um, including one of them being a lizard folk nation Um, so it's not so much that they were doing things and weren't really a part of things it's it's just that we are bringing them more to the forefront so instead of them being kind of off to the sides, they're now emerging more into mainstream societies, and will be showing up more as adventurers.
4: I'll add on to that. Um, also, a lot of things like we're having the opportunity where we can touch some things that we didn't ha- either have time for, or didn't have the right place for, or didn't even have interest in. Um, as a you know, as a company, there's a we've grown a lot in a number of developers and creators that we you know put our stuff into in, into our products. Where before it was, you know, like the same four or five guys who were putting in their things that they were super interested in. Like for example, James Jacobs came up with Varicia, So he really focuses a lot of his stuff on Varicia, While I might be super interested in some other thing. And so that, you know, as I get the power to put more things into books I do so, and all the other developers do so as well.
3: And that's kind of a, a neat thing that happens as we as we grow our staff, because as we're getting um, people with different perspectives and different experiences, we're able to bring those perspectives and experiences into our game um, and really make a much more rich and and deep world out of it. And I, that's that's a thing I dig a lot. I really like to see that happen.
2: From a mechanical angle also, just consider that Lizardfolk had been a two-hit-die species in 1st in Edition, which made them... Not entirely player-character incompatible, but it came with some baggage from a design perspective. And now that we've moved on to how we work with Ancestries, it's a lot easier to incorporate uh, people like the Aruxie into the campaign.
3: Um, kind of following from that, um, do you guys have any like information about maybe Gripply culture? Or um, any do plans I? to use them going further? I really like them, but they just don't show up very often, and I'd like to know more. The editors love them. <laughs>
2: I adore them in part because we've done some Pathfinder Society stuff with them where I was able to explore things that were then covered further in uh, Blood of the Beast, one of our player companion books. Um, and one of the big things that I tried to push with the Gripplies which were shown as isolationist and also kind of on the way down, yeah? Small
3: frog people.
2: Liz is very good about noticing these things of like, we have not introduced these proper nouns. Um, (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, But uh, there's sort of a question of why are the Gripleys living in isolation or what are they even doing with themselves? Um, And one of the big tropes that we have in Blood of the Beast and uh, is explored in season eight, I think it is, is this notion of fiend keepers. The idea that... um, like, the way that we've presented the Mwangi Expanse in several places has been like, oh yeah, there are all sorts of slumbering, terrible things that if you stick a shovel in there, you're probably going to dig up a demon. Um, and so the Gripplies are clearly aware of this, and they have developed this tradition where instead of just sealing it and putting like your Final Fantasy runes on there so that it comes back in a thousand years because plot lines, um, instead what they do is they, have, they use the first edition medium class Uh, to create this tradition called fiend keeping where instead of having a champion or a hierophant spirit that you incorporate into yourself you have bound a fiend into your body and the goal is to do as many good actions as you can in your lifetime to try and slowly weather away at the nature of this fiend to purify it, to redeem it, or destroy it in some way without it ever breaking free. And these go on in these generational cycles where you might go through 20 generations of person passing the same Asura Rana down the line, down the line, down the line. And if somebody ever lets themselves become one of those fiendkeeper mediums who doesn't stay like good or neutral and goes evil, it can take over you and escape. So there's an archetype for that in Blood of the Beast, but that's one of the concept, hello, there you have it, you even have a book with you. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> nice. One of the uh, concepts where I wanted to explore with them of what are they even doing? Um, and there's more to them and and because they and to an extent the Uruksi have been kind of pushed out of some of their ancestral lands more and more and more as the, uh, especially as like the Chelish have moved into the Mungi Expanse, um, there's just been sort of a an investigation of like what had they been doing and what sort of uh, interesting cultural elements could they bring to the table. Uh, just that they're not like, the frog people, end of story. What do they do? I don't know, they ribbit. Um, you know, there's got to be more to it
0: than that.
3: You are all welcome to come up to the microphone if you have questions. You don't have to wait until it's empty to stand up.
0: <laughs> also, if you feel locked in and don't want to get over anybody's
2: knees, that's a wireless mic that we can bring it to you.
3: Yeah, just wave your hair, wave your arms around.
2: Hi, uh, I learned about Elfgate from Castroval in Starfinder, but uh, never heard about it in Pathfinder. Will we see some linked with those gates?
3: We sure will. Um, so uh, in Pathfinder, they're more commonly known as Ayudara. Um, that's the elven word for them. And as it turns out, the entire first second edition adventure path, first second edition adventure path, that yeah. makes sense. Oh boy. Um, the Age of Ashes actually centers around a series of Ayudara and some of the interactions between them. So um, if that's a, if that's a concept you dig, that's going to be a really good adventure path for you.
4: And that was something that was first introduced in the inner sea world guide and we never really did much with it between
7: then and now yeah i mean there there are
2: a couple of references where if you go digging you can find them for example mythic realms has some talk about the door to the red star uh because most of the ayudara seem to go either uh within galarian or to castravel but uh the door to the red star is one that goes to uh, akaton where the contemplatives of ashok are residing and so there's some connection stuff there that uh, Mythic Realms explores. Uh, while leaving the door open, of course, for more adventures.
5: Uh, we have another question from Twitch chat. It's from Man Doodly. Um It's been said P- Pathfinder 2 is a couple years after Pathfinder 1. Uh, what happened in Numer- Num- uh, Numeria after the change of- in Iron Gods?
3: Oh, I edited this section. Let's see how much of it I can remember.
4: <laughs> it's all you then. Also, I will note that we have an entire panel about that uh, called Evolution of Galarian. Tomorrow? Probably, oh, oh,
3: yeah. So that's probably the better answer. Um, but in in short, sort of, we're assuming that the things that happened in Adventure Paths have happened. Um, so put up your if, if you're afraid of spoilers, plug your ears for a second. Um, there has been a change in leadership um, that has had some implications on the political status of the nation. Um, there's some opportunities there. Um, I'm not going to say a whole lot more than that mm-hmm. right now because um, I'm probably going to misremember it.
2: <laughs> but but I think. Uh, working off of what Liz said, where a lot of the things that happen in Adventure Paths are assumed to have happened. Anytime that you give six volumes of activity to a bunch of player characters, they bork up all sorts of stuff in that area. <laughs> so you can imagine there are, some, there are some changes in the area, but there's also a whole lot of the original identities still there to play with.
1: I saw that number of items in the core book got renamed, like Ion Stones become Aeon Stones, some critters got new names. Is that just trademarkability, or is that a story-wise uh, building?
4: A little bit of both.
2: Yeah, there there's certainly some parts where it's a matter of um, of trademarking, like one of the things that we ra- that we run into with our miniatures line, as well as that we ran into with the adventure card game, is that um, some of the names that we would use would have to have the OGL, the uh, Open Gaming License, printed along with them. And you cannot print that thing on the back of a card, and certainly not on the back of every card. <laughs> we prefer to have more artistic designs there. Or a miniature. Uh, or a miniature. Or, or a miniature. <laughs> Size 0.01 font, <laughs> maybe. So, um, so for that, we come up with some more generic terms. Uh, so you may have seen like Force Missile rather than Magic Missile. And Aeon Stone is something that ties in a little bit more to our setting lore. Um, but also it gets away from uh, some older terminology that we wanted to just depart from. Uh, certainly in 4th edition got turned into a deity. I'm less familiar with what Aeon's identity was before that.
4: I think it originally came from uh, Jack Vance.
2: Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Mm.
4: And then also, that also helps it sync up more with um, Starfinder Mm -hmm. to make the two universes make a little bit more sense together.
2: Because there are Aeon Stones in there as well. And basically, when we looked at our Aeons in like Bestiary 2, a lot of those are orbital creatures. So we can tie them into those critters too. And for
4: the critter name changes, one of the things uh, with that is we kind of touched on with the Aruxy is that catfolk wouldn't necessarily call themselves catfolk just like we won't call ourselves primate folk so they need their own internal name just to make a little bit more sense
8: in our own heads you guys have had like a decade of ap's come out lots of plot lines lots of different stuff was there any complications going into tui since
2: you assumed they all took place at the same time or were they all contained enough that they didn't really step on each other's toes and have anybody's plot lines kind of get messed up where you know something was supposed to be happening during this age but then two years later a similar character was supposed to be in a different AP elsewhere
4: I think that I think there's been historically a mis a misconception about how our publication dates and how time works in our world a lot of times it said oh well things don't necessarily change but each AP starts in the year that it was published in more or less so mm-hmm. in relation to the calendar like an AP that came out in 2012 happens in 4712 and even in campaign settings that come out from that we've done small incremental changes we just haven't ever published answers to the big questions of like what happened,
2: you know, who now rules Cor- Corvosa, and stuff like that. Um, so... And, and for some of those things, they're ones where even though there are 24 adventure paths to, to address, some of them are ones that don't even remotely begin to talk to each other. It's like, by golly, curse the Crimson Throne, did you hear that the Stolen Lands has been settled by somebody else on the other side of the continent? So? Uh, it doesn't really change what happens in Varisia. It It's some rumors, sure, but... Yep. And um, we have
3: the advantage of having one creative director who's overseeing the process. So um, if, if adventure paths happen in the same place, it is intentional and there are continuous threads through that. Um, so it was sort of like resolving one big three-part story rather than three individual stories. So um, House Regarvia and uh, a dwarven clan had disappeared in Brevois. Is there plans to possibly resolve what happened to house regarvia since now the timeline is advancing and things are happening in the stolen lands and Brevois is on the brink of civil war and all that business and what's what's happening with uh house regarvia and that dwarven clan that's gone missing
2: so house regarvia uh, disappeared about 200 years ago as i recall and basically they were the big power in Brevois they disappeared there's a power vacuum and now you have uh Roslyn and isya going at it um so I don't believe that there are any formal plans this time to really revisit House of However, if this is something that interests you, be sure to check out the end of the uh, Kingmaker Adventure Path, which has in its continuing campaign uh, article some opportunities to revisit what happens when Issy gets uh, antsy or when, um, uh, what is it, Chorl the Conqueror or uh, whatever the red dragon's name was comes back and is like, Hey, surprise! <laughs> so, so that's canon, then,
3: that Chorl is the dragon
2: the uh
1: he wasn't in the
2: i might be i might be confusing the two terms because we have the we have the conquer itself and the dragon stuff so the end of kingmaker has those, those opportunities <laughs> to explore I, I don't want to say anything that'll lock us into uh any business but one thing to consider is that although the adventure paths themselves are by and large been canonized the continuing the campaign pieces. Usually aren't because those usually say, How can we stretch this? Like Mummy's Mask has Ulunat, uh, one of the spawn of Robogug, coming back to an animated interlife. <laughs> That's a fun one to discuss. Uh, uh, okay, Ulunat has not come back to life, but if you had wanted to continue your Mummy's Mask campaign in a big explosive way, that would be the way. Just like how the end of, or the continuing the campaign for Kingmaker is a what if sort of continuation.
4: Yeah, most of those uh, continuing the campaign articles, um, which I oversaw for. Five or six years um, pro- provide more than one potential outcome, so there's no possible way they could all two or three or four be accurate.
1: Uh, when I was reading through the Beast Jury, uh, the Callborn, i can't remember which one, which yeah. book—they're from. The Beast Jerry seemed to imply that they just collected memories. Uh, the Redemption Engine novel implied that they subsisted on memories. Is it one or the other?
3: I don't actually think they're mutually exclusive. Yeah. Um, They they collect memories, and my understanding of that is that it's kind of a psychic fuel for them, um, so that they're not necessarily consumed, but that they they serve as sort of an empowerment and engagement. It kind of
1: ties into something. um, The Pact World's book for Starfinder says that there's an enclave of Calborn on uh, Castorbell. Well, if the gap's there... Did they starve or were were they like super duper full like three thanksgiving dinners full? so
2: so <laughs> let's let's make sure that we're clear on one thing at least as far as my understanding of how the gap functions is the gap didn't stop memories from happening the gap seems to have purged collective memory of what happened during this time period so they would still have been around sentient beings potentially but, but it's
3: like having all the blood sugar pulled out of your it, oh, the yeah. end of the gap was probably real rough they, for they, them.
2: They, they clearly came back to collective consciousness with one hell of a hangover. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I'm kind of not surprised because th- I'm pretty sure the Caldborn were uh, the creation of James Sutter, who mm. not yep. only did Redemption Engine and Karamaga stuff, but also wrote uh, two th- three quarters of the uh, Castorville article.
5: We have another question from Twitch uh, from Seven Laureate. Um, is there any more information on the third damnation of House Throne? Hmm.
3: hmm. I, hmm, I I should be the one who knows that. And I don't know the answer to that. I guess the answer to that is no. We don't have any more information.
5: <laughs>
3: yeah, we got one over there. If we can ferry a mic over. Yep, right. Thank you. There you go. You can hand that over to him.
1: All right. Uh, so a little bit uh, lighthearted, but uh, what actually happened that night? Kaiden Kaleen became a god, or is it Kaiden Kallien? Oh, That's Kydan another Kalyan. secret. Oh.
2: Uh, Kelly. Well, that, that's one of the things about the all the tests of the Starstone is they are different, but they also all happen within the Starstone Cathedral, which is its own narrative veil around the Starstone process. Um, my understanding of the Starstone process is that it's a little different for everybody. Yep. So what he went through, what Iomide went through, what I'm sure Rasmir went through uh, are, are all very different. Um, so, and was he sober enough to even remember to tell us? Not necessarily, but...
4: Did something happen within the test that made
3: him not remember that's also a possibility mm-hmm. um, Ooh, yeah, yeah that's that's I one like that. that's one that has a lot of a lot of narrative um, narrative potential to it uh, I'm actually going to address the the unasked question there of pronunciation um, i I have been working on Paizo products for a la- like six years now and only this past April, I actually moved to the office and began working in-house with people, and I found out that I pronounce things very differently from most of my coworkers. <laughs> and so I've actually put some thought into this, um, in that Galarian is a huge world, and it has people speaking Taldan common, um, from all over the world, from all different native languages. And so of course people are going to pronounce things differently, and so the fact that I say Serenre and most of the people in the office say Serenre is fine.
2: That sounds like a Serenre perspective.
3: (laughs) I will redeem you yet.
2: (laughs) You you can get your sandwich out of here. Come on.
6: (laughs) This is like the first few pages of the new new bestiary. Um, But I want to ask a little about the, the convergence, I believe it's called, between Aeons and Inevitables and that whole... Can you speak uh, up a little bit? Sorry. I want to talk about the convergence that was called out in the beginning of the new bestiary, but between Aeons and Inevitables. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I kind of want to know if, like, kind of where that came from as like a necessity to kind of have like one set of outsiders per alignment or if that kind of planned in the past or kind of where that came from.
2: Uh, I can speak to that somewhere.
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah go think for think it. You're...
2: Okay. Um, so there are a couple different things happening. First off, the, the Aeons in first edition had very much a sort of policing perspective or approach. Um, And the more that we explored Axis, as well as the primal Inevitables and the like, uh, the more we sort of looked at uh, these Aeons as approaching uh, much of the maintenance of the multiverse from a lawful neutral perspective. Um, Also, uh, Aeons are something where, this is something where we were creating those in-house, whereas Inevitables were very much something that we had uh, adopted from previous systems and sort of carried forward, and they had served us really well. But as far as developing more of the Pathfinder and Starfinder identity, Aeons is much more of a space for us to explore. Um, So uh, melding the two together and bringing them under a similar umbrella uh, has made a lot of sense, Um, especially because it it allows us to explore a little bit more of communication with Aeons, we hope, which have always been one heck of a time to role play at the table because it's like okay well what would you like what are your feelings on this matter and then it just shows you like 15 different images
0: and you're like so is that a yes <laughs> um which is cool but it can be hell for a gm um so i have a question about the continent of sarusan oh, yeah. um obviously it hasn't really been explored in any <laughs> Big way. I was wondering if there were any like different races other than the black skin humanoids, maybe the serpent folk who live on that continent. I know it's you know used to be connected to Tianjiao. Just if you have any information about it, that'd be you know nice. I
3: mean, I guess I think the the most important thing about Surusan is that it has um, some kind of supernatural effect that causes people to forget everything when they leave, yeah. and kaiju.
2: Yeah, one of the one of the other things I'll bring up with that is that. um, when it comes to these setting books, our setting books are almost always presented in a very indicative and factual way, so that if there's a statement in there, it's presented as though it is fact. Um, So once we say anything about Saracen, it starts to remove some of the mystery. And Saracen, uh, as has been kind of passed to me through various conversations, is one of those places on the map that can always remain mysterious. No matter how much we describe of any other nation, any other continent, you will always have Sarasan as the I-can-make-this-whatever-I-want place. And I will always have the Terra Incognita uh, counterbalance over there.
3: And you will always be right, because we will never say that you're wrong. (laughs) Or at least
2: we have no plans (laughs) in a long time to say that you're wrong. Uh, Mitigated the effects of the Earthfall. But um, Akavna was described as dying and falling down to to, to form the Spire eventually. But Amaznam was described as poisoned and possibly just missing in some weird way. Do you have any information as to
0: what may have happened to him?
4: Not necessarily missing. He just ceased to exist. Basically spent all of his deific power to do what he can. And part of that was because he felt that Akavna was being a too brash in her attempts to try to save the planet. She and,
2: just wanted to stab the moon, come on. Yeah,
4: and then he was just like, oh, you can't do that. And so he, he was really trying to protect her more so than Galarian, and kind of used up all of his energy and just ceased to exist. Hmm. Was that in the... Uh, in
2: 123?
4: Is that in the Atlantic Gods article? Okay, because I don't remember writing that. But I wrote that article.
8: <laughs> you <sure> did. <laughs>
5: uh, we have a question from Twitch from Chitreyu. Uh Are there any homelands or empires for non-human races or ancestries outside of where we know them to be currently prevalent? Uh, for example, beyond uh, dwarves from beyond the Five Kings Mountain, elves from Kyonin, Wayangs, Kitsune, Samsarin from Tianxia. Any like expat page, uh, populations? Uh,
2: so, as far as non-human empires and kingdoms and the like. Uh, we do know of Druun, which is an uh, lizard lizardfolk place that is roughly on the southern tip of Garand. There's, there's still a little bit of flex as far as where those borders are. Um, so I know of that one.
3: Uh, well, knows. there's a, a brand new uh, empire, I mean, empire, but nation, of hobgoblins in the Inner Sea region, um, taking up part of uh, what had been uh, Molthun and Nirmothus. I've forgotten the name of right now. It'll come to me after the panel. Uh, Anandi? Uh, oh, Prak. Alprak, a Anandi, Anandi, That's right, in mm-hmm. southern Garund. There's also a uh, an Amaroon, a catfolk nation in southern Garund.
2: Mm-hmm. And also, we still have we still have ideas in house, and we have you know our headcan and whatnot as far as what certain parts of Casmorund look like, what certain parts of Vudra look like, and so we have some notions of what might go in there. Non-human uh, major populations and, and political structures could be among them. Um, But one of the great things about having some of those places not fully fleshed out as of yet is as we bring in more developers and editors and like, it is more of an opportunity for uh, newer generations of writers and professionals to be able to put their mark on Galarian because our first generation, so to speak, really did uh, one hell of a number on the inner sea region. And then when we got around to the uh, campaign setting book, Distant Shores, uh, where we had six different city gazetteers spread uh, beyond the inner sea region. That was very much an opportunity for some of the people who had been hired since then to say, okay, well, here's what some of Arcadia looks like, or for Mark, here's what some of Voodra looks like. For me, it was, here's what some of Iblidos looks like. Um, and it was a possibility to expand the map, but also expand the number of voices that were helping to shape what Galarian looks like. It also, and Castorvel will likely serve sort of aid another another uh, similar
3: purpose. Ca- uh Sorry, Casron. <laughs> I mean, Castorvel too, but yeah. um, it also leaves room for you. Um, where if you need to build an empire, if you need to build a gripply empire, we, there's room for you to do that.
8: <laughs> Hi. Um, so uh, in the introduction for um, Concordance of Rivals, yes. uh, the... Uh, I. Man, yeah. I am all over that. We book. love that Let book. me tell you, I love it. Uh, so, uh, in the intro, the survivor Phrasma, mm-hmm. or as you might pronounce it, Phrasma, um, <laughs> thank you, uh, was uh, you know uh, observing the, uh, the 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 uh, congealing of the, of the multiverse, and then there's this being that looks out at her and gives her visions of the you know the the uh, risk of like life becoming unbalanced or you know so and so on and so forth. But it was, it, I don't recall it ever actually being said. Was that the Monad?
2: Yes. And as the Monad, it would never identify itself.
8: That makes sense. But, um, okay, so that struck me as a very Aeon kind of way of communicating and a very Aeon kind of approach to the multiverse. So I was like, is this the Monad? But it never came out and said.
2: Yeah, so in that opening sort of creation of the multiverse, at least this iteration of it, um, there's very much Phrasma saying, Okay, I saw what happened in the previous multiverse. Not going to do that again. Nope, 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 nope. Um, she is starting to spin it. It's uh, starting to uh, flush itself out. And then the monad just sort of emerges from this spiral of, of cosmic threads. And wing- sort of blinks at her a couple times. She's like, is there going to be a problem? It sends her all these visions and says, this is going to cause all sorts of terrible things. I'm like, Do you want to help fix it? It backs up slowly and starts fixing things. She's like, okay, I guess we're cool now. <laughs> um, and and yeah so uh when it comes to the uh aeons helping to maintain the integrity of the multiverse and to an extent you know pointing in that lawful neutral direction um that's the start of it and everything else that is aeons has spun out from that moment
3: it was, that was a good pickup that was that was keen on your part
1: right, i got another one for you um so I and mean, it might be a little bit of a weird one but uh time magic exists right Sure. (laughs) Spells that affect time exist, and uh, uh, sources no more arcane than the first edition GM's guide reference time travel. How many time travelers are there on Galarian, and what happens if they go into the gap?
2: Um, I mean, when it comes to. Do they come out is a better question. (laughs) When it comes to how many are on Galarian, that's very much an at any given moment sort of question. 47. Oh, Adam, we don't tell them those (laughs) things. Now now they're going to guess. We're going to start making forum threads. about. I think
7: that this person's a time traveler.
2: (laughs) I would really like to see that thread and see some of your theories, because if you include some theories on that, that would be really delightful (laughs) reading for the whole office. Um, uh, But yeah, what would happen if they go into the Gap? My... Mm, I can they might get theories.
3: stuck. Oh, well, that's
2: a good theory. I like or, that one.
3: Mm, or they—it might be that when you leave the gap, no matter how you leave the gap, the gap's effects do still affect you.
2: That's that's more what I was thinking. Of that, it, no matter how you exit, you will still walk through the memory. The duration, veil, yeah. Or whatever memories you create in there stay in the gap. What happens in the gap stays in the gap. <laughs> First rule of Gap Club: You do not talk about Gap Club.
4: So, only barely related to that, I have to uh, tell everyone my one of my favorite Easter eggs I ever put into a product that was so incredibly obscure that absolutely no one has picked up on it in like nine years. Um, back in the 90s, there was a, a sh- well, there's still a show. There's Art Bell who did this like talking about aliens and all sorts of other stuff, um, Coast to Coast AM. Anyway, at one point, he got this call from this guy named John Teeter who claimed he was a time traveler. And those episodes are wacky, like bizarre stuff. And so, whenever I was doing uh, in the Kingmaker book, the town that goes in and out of
2: oh, yeah. time, oh,
4: yeah. uh, origin, origin, um, I named the leader of that town Teeter Restivo, linking back to John Teeter. Which only if you are a conspiracy nerd would you ever have gotten that.
3: Nice Easter egg. Yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, quick question chat from Pinstripe Barbarian. Uh, with the change in setting, um, has there been a difference in how people view Razmir? Is he more accepted, less accepted, was there any change in perceptions about Razmir?
3: Rasmir is has a tentative alliance with um, the Gravelands and the Whispering Tyrant, so take from that what you will.
2: <laughs> Razmir is definitely one of those figures who, don't get me wrong, is potent, is powerful. When you show up with your fifth level PCs being like,
3: we're going to save the world,
2: Razmir will wreck you. Um, but in the grand scheme of the multiverse, <sighs> Razmir is insignificant and does not accept it. Um, so Rasmier is the sort of person who would get into all sorts of real bad deals and think, ah, beat the system. I got two gumballs for this quarter. <laughs> and then he will get squashed. Um, so uh are people viewing him with any more acceptance or whatnot eh, my suspicion is no probably in old age he's only getting even more desperate
3: alliances um, with undead lich tyrants don't make you friends
2: yeah So like it's like when i do cool things you're gonna make me a lich too right uh sure
7: <laughs> oh boy yay mask one forever
2: uh i like poking fun at rasmir he's my favorite <laughs> I want to follow up on the
6: question about Phrasma and the Concordance of Rivals, which is, um, how reliable of a narrator is Tabris, given that he's our only source on, like, Chronicles of the Righteous, Book of the Dam Concordance of Rivals?
2: You're going to get slightly different answers from different people. Um, So, on one hand, you will have the school of thought that uh, Tabris is somebody who got a whole lot of really good information, and Tabris sort of claims to have gone through all the steps and checked all of his sources, but... um, Uh, This came up a little bit in the Secrets of Galarian panel that we had at Paizocon, where James and I were both on the same panel. And James emphasized that Tabris got some of his information from Asmodeus, who is a god of lies. So is that reliable? James would say no. I would say that the way that Tabris approaches it is he listened to everything Asmodeus Asmodeus had to say, nodded politely, and then went and fact-checked. So I tend to view Tabris as more of a very reliable narrator. James tends to approach him as... A pretty reliable narrator with some possible flaws thrown in there um, but the really key thing with Tabris overall is the last spread of Concordance of Rivals which is a sign off after all three of the books were written um, which is pointing out that Tabris understands and groks so much of the multiverse but there's still something out there that he could not quite get and he got it for all of like a few seconds and then it started to fade away and for the life of him he does not understand why or how or or whatever um and it and it leads him to not only believe that um there's more out there yet to be discovered by potentially some heroes out there especially mortal ones um but also Tabris is somebody who got where he is by going out and investigating for himself and questioning Everything. And the notion that you would accept everything of his at face value as the word of truth is antithetical to how Tabris has to operate. So Tabras signs off with Take all of what I say with a grain of salt. Understand that it's real nice salt, but um you need to go out and see this for yourself and don't capital T trust me on things, because that would be a lie to yourself and to me. Go out and figure it out for yourself. Um, especially because this one vaccine secret still is out there, and I know what I'm pre- I know what it is, but we're not getting into that here.
3: <laughs> hey, this is a Secrets of Galarian panel. What is it? Oh, deck Nabbit, Liz. <laughs> I wasn't going to answer if they asked, but now you did. Ugh. I know, right?
2: Um, <laughs> I'm such a jerk. Jeez, uh, this is a, this is the sort of relationship we have with our editors. <laughs> like,
3: <laughs> we 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 make them fix things all the time. <laughs>
2: um uh people here familiar with the alignment axis people here familiar with one of the approaches to the alignment axis that has a third axis called bacon and necktie or orange and blue okay so um the very the basic notion is that good and evil law and chaos bacon necktie what does bacon mean uh well the answer is it's beyond the scope of our understanding of morality this is oftentimes used when describing alien uh, sentiences which are beyond our ability as human authors to really process much less convey um, they show up they eat all the people they fly off and we say but why did you do evil things they say what evil we just did what we do um and so um there's a notion that tabris started to see that um the align the nine point alignment chart is superficial that the entire multiverse is broken into a nine-point alignment system and that it is a lie or it is only a shadow of what is possible. And he started to see what, that there is more to morality, more to ethics than just saying, I am lawful and good. No, there's more to it. And as a former angel, he cannot for the life of him process it. If you go into some of those, um, uh, those interstitial chapters, He talks about how, like, oh, there's a reflection of good energy that starts to create nirvana. Um, And that, in turn, basically spawns off outsiders. That's how our cycle of souls goes. Your, Your spirit energy, your soul energy goes to this area, and then it uses it as fuel to create a reflection of itself. So gods cannot know, capital T, truth. Outsiders cannot know capital-T Truth because they are confined within this nine-point alignment system. And Tabris started to break that, and as a result, break down. Which is why you see him disintegrating, turning kind of uh, unangelic, because he has to discard as much of his immortal essence and alignment identity as possible, even going beyond neutral in the middle, to even begin to understand what this is, and it is killing him. And he has this brief moment where it is on the tip of his tongue in that last spread, but he is unable to transcend the alignment uh, strictures of his own creation. And so in a way, because mortals are not created from one of the outer planes, it is possible that only a mortal could really ever understand this thing or uncover that secret. But of course, I write the word of Tabris, Tabris is a potentially unreliable narrator, so who even knows if what I am saying here is the ultimate answer. Whatever it is that you want to create that secret to be, it's yours to explore. I just know what my approach is.
3: This got real deep. You're saying that this
2: a point
4: I would love to make, unless, until it's in print, nothing's canonical. Right. Like, we can have our own ideas hey, right, until me. we write it down.
3: And publish it. But, it's, but
8: if, if, I, if I create my own answer to this and then you guys come out with the Chronicles of Faken, then, you know.
3: <laughs> done. <laughs> I keep track of all of these book ideas. Let's go on to the next question.
8: <laughs> all right, so one of the things I saw in the new 2E book was obviously the creation of, you know, champions instead of, you know, just bringing up paladins, which I like because I can't stand just playing lawful good paladins. Um, obviously... Um, is there a lore decision now that we see more of these characters? Because I know, you know, when we when I was playing Adventure Pass, we just see we'd only see Paladin. We wouldn't see like a champion of Asmodeus or uh Kaiden Kalian, whatever the hell his name is. I don't whatever. He doesn't uh, know either. For Asmo. <laughs> well, you know, like is there so it's a two-pronged question. Are we gonna see more um is there a reason why lore wise this is happening? Or and are we gonna see more player options for like, you know, champions of Asmodeus and like um you know, things like that.
3: I can speak to the first. Um, I think, actually, there always have been characters filling this role. They just end up with really weird mechanical underpinnings to make it work because we can't just make them paladins. But champion, there are champions of every deity, and so this is really just a mechanical solution to solve a reality that's been there in our setting the entire time.
2: That you could have been doing in first edition with Warpriest as well.
3: That's true. Um, as to the second, I mean, the framework is there. Um, we haven't we haven't published anything beyond that yet. Um, we don't. Uh, there's a. I, I'm not sure what's being announced and what's been decided that's going to come. But the framework exists. So whether you build it or we build it, like that, that's that's there as a tool.
2: De- definitely one of the things from a design perspective. Uh, really early on, there were a lot of talks like, how far do we expand the champion? Do we do a champion for all nine alignments? Do we do it for the uh, good and neutral ones, uh, let's see. Um, it was kind of determined that there were a lot of shared aspects between the three good alignments that would work really well for the champion as you'll see it in the core Um, But there are some mechanics to it that certainly allow the design space later to explore a neutral version of it or an evil version of it. And maybe we'll see it down the line.
1: They get judged by Phrasma and potentially become angel, devil, demon, etc. If that angel, devil, demon dies, do they get rejudged, or is that no longer applicable to the state they're in?
3: I think they get absorbed back into the yeah. plane. The yeah.
4: quintessence,
2: yeah. Their, their quintessence gets absorbed into the plane, which gradually expands that plane, although the planes, as they expand, gra- uh, gradually come up against the maelstrom, which uh, tears them apart, throws things back into the antipode, but that sends them back to the positive energy plane, which then spouts through uh, new souls that then disperse through the material plane, get absorbed by new births into new beings, who then create their own alignment perspectives, and begin the cycle again.
0: Um, so, just a question to follow up on Tabris: um, He knows how Aerdyn died, disappeared, or died, right? He knows that.
2: Um, not necessarily. The there's sort there is a very rough implied timeline of when Tabris was operating, and it's way back a when, a long time ago. And so, Aerdyn's death was only a little over a century ago. So, all just because Tabris has a. Uh, really great idea of how the multiverse worked back, I don't know, let's say 20,000 years ago, just for funsies, doesn't mean that that is either still entirely true, much less that he is omniscient to anything that has happened since. So I suspect that Tabris probably has many theories of what is true, may have even observed it, or uh, and Seth for all I know, but ain't talking at this time.
3: Is the cycle of souls a closed system, or can energy be lost or added?
2: Uh, this is one where I'm. This is one where I'm tempted to get into some deep metaphysical stuff again. Let,
3: well, let's keep it higher level, just so we get more right. questions. Uh, the,
2: the the basic notion is that um, it is uh, intended to be a closed system. Intended. How, yes. Uh, when fr- in Concordance Arrivals, when Phrasma creates the system, she basically is creating a bubble, on the inside of which are growing the outer planes. And then you have the space inside that is the material plane, the elemental planes, all that good stuff, the astral uh, space um, with the positive energy in the very middle. So what goes on outside of that bubble is its own thing. And uh, the opening of Concordance of Rivals sort of speaks to her creating the bubble in order to protect this quintessence glob from things beyond. So we do know that there is stuff outside of the known multiverse. And we also know for Zonkuthan, um, that when Dubral went on a little vacation outside the bubble, don't go on a vacation outside the bubble, um, then XYZ happened and Zon Kuthan came back. So the notion that soul energy could seep through outside the Outer planes, or instead of it getting uh, destroyed by the Maelstrom, just gets weathered out and scatters like quintessent dandruff um, is
5: entirely possible. And what sort of stories that could possibly tell? That's up to you. Question from Twitch from Bearforce. Uh, would you each be able to volunteer a small secret you've personally been excited to tell us about the changeover in additions, hmm. floor-wise? Specifically about the changeover in additions. I,
3: I I have one. Yeah,
5: I think you have a lot more than us, in fact.
3: Um, so uh, I, I have a lot of love for Arasni. Um, and Arasni has been very active in the last couple of months. Yeah. Um, and Arasni continues to be active. And uh, there's 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 stuff there. That's um, coming. So keep your eyes open. You will. You you have not heard the last of the uh, the unyielding.
2: I, I think though that's uh, great for people to be able to catch up to speed a little bit on Erasmi. So where could they read more about Arasny?
3: Um Most of what's been happening with Erasmi lately has been in the Tyrant's Grasp adventure path, specifically the first three or four volumes. For four, four, four volumes.
2: And I think it's in Volume 4 that has an article about Arasni in
4: particular. It's
3: actually, I think the second book has the article, and oh. then and then there's more detail about Erasne and her plans in Book 4.
4: I can't think of one right now. It seems like a lot of the meaty ones we've already kind of talked about on the blogs and stuff. like
2: Yeah, because a lot of the developments that we've done have really been facing the Inner Sea region, um, and not not yet the stuff beyond. So... Um, I'm I'm generally just uh, really excited to see about developing some more stuff for the ongoing Absalom story, which has been very much the the domain of Pathfinder Society for the past decade, Um, when it comes to manumission of of all the slaves that were there and the various effects that come off of that to um, what happened when they tried to use all the cornucopias uh, for the first time after Airden's death. Things like that. What happened to Primark gear? Uh, These are all great questions.
5: Here from Angel Tarragon uh, is the gap and disappearance of Galarian an homage to Takaisis and Kuren? I don't know. It. I'm afraid I don't know the reference. Ah, I'm I pronouncing them wrong. It's uh, T-A- uh, T A.
0: Oh, 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 oh. Okay, so for
2: Dragonlance stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I would say that it is not an intended homage to it. Uh, there's definitely. Uh, Dragonlance in a real minor spoiler nutshell, there's at some point, there's God stuff that happens and the gods keep on being like, I'm in power. I know I'm in the corporeal flesh. Well, I'm going to rule the world. And uh, at one point, Takesis basically goes, you know what? Bleep it, takes the known world and goes plop somewhere else. And then there are stories that happen from that. Um, So I know about those, but I was not involved in the original conceit of the gap. So those would have not spilled over. Um, and I don't believe that they were part of the equation.
3: We got time for about one more question. Who wants the last one? Enthusiasm in the blue shirt here.
5: Okay. Uh,
0: where's Nex? Where's what? Where's Nex? The wizard.
3: Where's oh. Nex? I think he's just like hanging out in his demiplane.
0: Yeah, I
2: believe <laughs> I believe he's been in one of his bolt holes for a while.
3: Maybe. I mean, well, he's in there. When, when,
2: it com- when it comes to all these like twentieth level wizards with mythic tiers or beyond, if that's what Nex even has, um, like once they're a couple thousand years in, it, the question of alive versus other is an open one. So, is he alive? Has he transcended into just a glob of arcane potency? Ugh. <laughs> Uh, but if you like next stuff or if you like uh, the Tower of Next outside of Absalom, um, you can also find out a few more things from Eric Mona's head in the Worldscape comic series because that does explore the uh, Tower of Next a bit.
3: Awesome. You guys have had some fantastic questions. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for all of you Twitch people for tuning in and asking your great questions. Um, I hope you guys all have a great rest of your Gen Con.
2: And we'll be gathering outside to make room for the next panel that's coming in. But if you have further questions or comments or want to ask us about anything, we'll, we'll be, be outside. Out there.
7: Hi, welcome back. I've got John here to talk about a few more secrets of Galarian because I also have questions. Uh oh. So. We know from Starfinder that gnomes can live with the bleaching and they don't just die off like we were told in Galarian, at least at some point. Mm -hmm. So does that mean at some point we might see more uh, bleached gnomes that aren't like cursed and horrible or...? Well, I think
2: think one of the things that's important about the bleaching is that it's not just a matter of um, when you get the bleaching, you die. Mm -hmm. Uh, The bleaching is a condition that then spikes and if you survive it, mm-hmm. then you come out of it changed. Um, like in, I think in first edition Pathfinder, there was like a DC okay. 25 will save to oh, okay. not die oh, when see. it spikes. And if you do survive, then you are a Bleachling. Oh, okay. uh, so we have a, we have a gnome settlement uh, in the Lands of the Norm Kings mm-hmm. that phases in and out of the um, first world, it's presumed. Mm-hmm. And it has this weird thing where if it disappears uh, with non-Bleachlings in it, they just disappear. The Ooh. Bleachlings can be in there, but there's also this notion for Bleachlings of um, it might be a an awakening of your gnome essence um, because you come out of it being able to speak with animals. You don't age. Suddenly you're more in tune with nature, which okay. is possibly a better reflection of what gnomes were or could have been in the first world. Oh, and so, Bleachlings ten, tend to look at the Bleaching as a metamorphosis, mm. whereas all the others look at them as though they are living ghosts and scream and run the other direction. So, okay. uh, this is just more of a process that we see in Starfinder, mm. that you can just start as a Bleachling instead of going through the harrowing experience for years.
7: So I asked you this question because I know that you have a special place in your heart for gnomes. Sure do. Are there any other races of Galarian that you have a special affinity for or feelings towards?
2: Yeah. I'm a really big fan of Gripplies. Oh, okay. Um, when, like it, when you show up at Paizo, you sort mm-hmm. of show up and you're like, all right, I have these like 15 pet things that I really want to promote. And then you get there and you realize, oh my gosh, 12 of those are already like people have their claws. And <laughs> So, uh, Gripplies was one of those where I was like, I also like Gripplies, and people were like, oh yeah, Gripplies exist, don't they? Um, Gnomes was one where I, sh- when I showed up at Paizo, I was very much in the camp of, damn, Gnomes are goofy, I hate Gnomes, <laughs> let me just slap down Gnomes every time I see it, and I got to Paizo and I realized that nobody was there supporting Gnomes, I was like, oh, wait, but well, if all of you are gonna make Gnome jokes, then, no, that's wrong, <laughs> I've changed my tune, um, so, but I I do enjoy Gripplies. Uh, I have so you're a
7: definitely a champion of the little folks.
2: Yeah, and I, I have a soft spot for rat folk as well.
7: There you go, mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, is there anything else that we can look forward to to seeing uh, different secrets? Like I, for example, I know that you're a champion of Druma. Absolutely. And the Druma book just came out. It
2: sure did. What
7: sort of secret of Galerian tidbit can you give us and our audience members to uh, maybe entice them to take a look at that book?
2: So one of the big things about Druma is that Druma has this history that goes back possibly 10,000 years, mm-hmm. if you look at the NRC World Guide. Wow, okay. Um, and okay. Well, I mean, Druma just sort of exists, but it never talks about how it came to be. Sure. Um, and it only has two different dates in the NRC World Guide, and mm-hmm. one of them is, we helped somebody sign a treaty. And so... Thurston and I looked at this and we said, okay, Land of the Norm Kings, we can fight dragons, yeah! Ustala, by golly, Dracula's around the corner! Uh, next, everybody's a spellcaster! And Druma, well, actually, well, we have a nice pension plan and we uh, tend to live a fine life. Like, that is not Scream Adventure, you know? Sure. You look at Druma and you're like, what, what the hell stories do you even tell here? Mm-hmm. Like, oh gosh, it's the... Um, uh, the Valoros and the Forbidden 401k. Uh, So what we ended up doing with this was we uh, wanted to expand not only the number of map tags on there, and Mm -hmm. Thirsty was really integral in expanding uh, all of our gazetteer information in that book, and also addressing a lot of the geopolitics and Mm -hmm. what is currently true. Uh, For me, my head was mostly in the history, because Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that we had... uh, that 10,000 years or more of history, and actually it goes back about 15,000 years in the book, so even before Earthfall, um, to tell you more about what it was like for the Keled people before Earthfall in central uh, Avistan, as well as why they are no longer the dominant uh, like imperial power, what happens when they ran into the dwarves, and what happened when they were, for about 7,000 years, basically a dwarven colony. Oh, wow. Um, so one of the things that has... One of the things that was sort of a sticking point with me when I look at some of our maps mm-hmm. is that we have that map in the n c World Guide that shows, oh, here's where this nation was. And none of them overlap. Oh. And it's
7: so like, what's well, in between them? Well,
2: what's in what's, yeah. well, I mean, they abut each other. Oh, okay. But it's almost as though, well, where Lirgan happened, uh, and Janmas happened, there was never any overlap. Or the mm, Cyclopean Golgan Empire never went over any other territory. So nobody ever like Followed up,
7: like bought and sold territory from each other, or wars and conquered, or, or things even, that are reflected. Even
2: the idea that every square mile of land on our mm-hmm. map sort of had this implied notion of there can only be one historical society that ever lived there.
7: Oh, I see what you're saying. And yeah. so
2: I wanted to make sure that there was this notion of territory and control having changed hands several times, so we can look at we can point put a pin in uh, the intercity map mm-hmm. and say if I put a pin in here, there were at least four different societies mm-hmm. that at some point right. were. Major there, and so Druma is very much an exploration of uh, the Khalid evolution in Central mm-hmm. Avistan and beyond, um, and how they uh, how they influence Intipur Isle, which is what the Isle of uh, Isle of Terror eventually became. Mm-hmm. Um, no, Isle of Dread. No, I, I was confused with the damn things. Ah! Uh, so either way, Whispering Tyrant Land. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, but also. How dwarves can be lawful good, but also be assholes at the same time. So uh, if you want to see an an evolution of what it means to have 10,000 or more years of history shaping your culture and how that has shaped Druma today, uh, as an anthropologist, I went into it with strictly that in mind to try and show that growth, especially when it comes to shaping um, the prophecies of Mm Calustrade, which Thirsty and I adore, and I adore in particular because... Unlike all of our other religions in the uh, system, where you can say Saren Ray says this, and Saren Ray can show up and say, "Actually, I don't say that." Right. Um, prophecies of Calustrade are invented. It's, mm-hmm. an inven- it's basically like a, I mean, a sci- drawing Scientology relationship is not quite right, but the idea sure. that it is a human humanoid developed
7: faith developed that
2: faith. is still supernaturally potent mm-hmm. and legitimate, mm-hmm. but does not have a deity to go to and say, yeah. can we fact check this? Because no, you
7: can't. <laughs> right.
2: So cult- all of the dreamish culture shapes what the prophecies of Calustrade look like, and we go into so much depth as to what the prophecies are mm-hmm. and what that history was. So it's an anthropologically thrilling read, <laughs> but is also uh, a whole delight even if you're not into all right. the academics.
7: All right, one last quick question. Sure. So I know that at one point, Eric Mona spoiled a little something about their diet. Does your book go into that? Does the Juma book go into the specifics of the diet and the purpose behind it?
2: Absolutely. It goes into the purpose of it. It goes into specifics. It goes into a whole bunch of the taboos. And it talks about where some of the taboos are more readily broken than others. Mm. um, Because some of them are like, yes, please be strict. And other ones we looked at and it was like, oh gosh, they say be entirely celibate.
7: Well, look, honestly, it's a (laughs)
2: Paizo setting. Like, we aren't going to say... You can't ever talk about your gender or anything like that. No, it's a matter of, like, okay, this is something that Calistrade said you shouldn't do. And modern prophets Mm -hmm. are like, yeah, he had a lot of ideas. (laughs) So we don't tend to poke fun at people for breaking this one. Sure, sure. Yeah.
7: Well, sounds really interesting. I know I'm looking forward to discovering some of the secrets of Druma when I read the book. And I hope you do, too. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: It's great to be here.
7: See you next panel.
1: And that was part of No Direction's 2019 Gen Con Seminar Coverage in partnership with Paizo! If you'd like to find more great content like this, go to nodirectionpodcast.com. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making content like this possible. If you would like to support the network and see that future content is created, you can do so at patreon.com slash nodirection or click on the Patreon link at nodirectionpodcast.com.